0: Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you be a missionary disciple in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio today is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Hope that you're having a very blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder program right here each week at the same time on your favorite Catholic radio station. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, that's mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for the Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Each week, we bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting the public arena. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment, and you can always email those to us at show at mncatholic.org. Finally, we have the bricklayer segment at the end of our show, where we give you a practical tip in ways you can build the common good brick by brick. In today's episode, we're discussing the political movement to try to normalize polygamy and the role of enacting policies that put children first. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about engaging in partisan politics, especially by clergy. And then stick around for the bricklayer, where we have details on four upcoming opportunities for Catholics to advocate and pray together at the state capitol. Today, we have this pleasure of speaking with Stacy Manning. Stacy is the general editor for the organization Them Before Us whose mission it is to advance social policies that encourage adults to actively respect the rights of children rather than expecting children to sacrifice their fundamental rights for the sake of adult desires. Stacy's recent article in The Federalist caught our attention. It discusses the movement in Utah to legalize polygamy or polyamory, and it Really, it's a movement that's built on the same arguments that you were used uh, to redefine marriage. She examined how polygamy advocates are working to advance their agenda. Stacy, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Thanks for joining us today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, first, please tell us about the work of Them Before Us. How did you get involved?
1: Well, it started in a living room, actually. My good friend, Katie Faust, founder of Them Before Us, Came home from vacation quite convicted that Barack Obama's evolution on gay marriage uh, was going to damage families in the long run, and uh, after a, a diatribe of uh, fear and concern that she didn't have the words, but God was putting her on a path and she needed an errand, uh, I came home quietly tucked my daughter in that night, thinking, "Oh, I, I should, I should be her errand. I, I should definitely do that." And as I went into my daughter's room. Uh, a five-year-old vacation Bible school CD was playing, and it was the story of Moses and Aaron. And I thought, Roger that, God. Um, Mission received. And from there, Katie and I began to blog on an incendiary-titled blog called Ask the Bigot, because, you know, absurdity gets attention. And never think small, because here we are, five years later... um, We've launched a global children's organization, and uh, and I'm talking to you.
0: So Then Before Us is one of my favorite advocacy organizations precisely because it puts uh, children's needs ahead of adult desires, and that was something that we really focused on uh, here in Minnesota during our marriage amendment debate in 2011 and 2012. Unfortunately, people couldn't see down the road. People were playing che- checkers, not chess and didn't see how redefining marriage would foment a revolution in family law. Um, No longer do we have that basic institution that connects a man and a woman and any children born from their union, but now we have uh, families being really a construction of the state. We don't create families, we build them, and then they come in any shape or size with interchangeable parts. Tell us how that story unfolded. I think that's the focus of your work and your writing, but, but you've been on the inside and really following it in depth. Share a little bit about how that sea change in family law is coming about.
1: I think that it it stems from a profound misunderstanding of the reason for marriage altogether. Um, Adults have begun in this emotionally driven society to believe that marriage is about their fulfillment and the state's acknowledgement of their commitment to another adult, um, completely eschewing the reality that marriage is the most um, simple and a profound and historical way to attach a mother and father to their biological children. When you detach marriage from parenthood, it's adrift in a sea of whatever adults desire, however they want to configure their lives, and the needs of the children have taken a very far back seat to what the adults desire and how they want to configure their lives.
0: We'll get to the Utah situation in a moment that I mentioned at the outset of the program, but share a little bit about how this redefinition of marriage has in, in practical ways, changed started to change the landscape of family law. Once you put the camel's nose under the tent and say that family law is really about uh, you know affirming adult desires through legal mechanisms and and really keeping the kids in, in the background, the best interests of the child standard that always govern family law is just sort of thrown out the window. What practically speaking, what has that meant in states around the country that you've seen in your writing and your coverage of this issue?
1: Boy, I can speak uh, very specifically to Washington State's law, uh, the Uniform Parentage Act that was unfortunately passed last year, entirely detaching children from their biological mother and father, It has done some serious damage in commodifying children. Um, You can come to Washington State. You only have to see a doctor once. You can be impregnated by whomever's sperm you choose to buy, whomever's egg you choose to buy, after selecting it through a catalog. The person that brings you here and has you impregnated doesn't have to be married to you. Anyone can be put on a birth certificate. There are no requirements for um, biological mothers and biological fathers to be on birth certificates. Mother and father have been scrubbed from the language in our laws. Tended parents, rather, are the only requirements for purchasing, essentially, children. There was a case, the state's escaping me, but there was a case where a woman made a deal with a man to sell her baby. Um, He was currently pregnant, and they both went to jail for child trafficking uh, for obvious reasons. But the only thing that mattered that convicted the two of them for this atrocious behavior was the timing this contract was made. Because had she made the deal with this man to sell her baby before she conceived the baby... No holds barred. In Washington State, that's perfectly fine. This entirely issues decades of best practices in adoption policy where adults are vetted, background checked, um, home studies are done. Uh, the, The acknowledgement that the adoption world has of the danger of giving a child to an unrelated adult has put so many safeguards in. It's no different with surrogacy except for the blindness that the policymakers seem to have in this realm.
0: Talk a little bit about the rhetoric that's helping to move these changes in policy going forward. Here in Minnesota, fortunately, we've uh, been able to forestall the adoption of a surrogacy enabling act um, we have not embraced those changes that you mentioned in Washington to the uniform parentage Act um, putting the helping to put the brakes on a lot of that but the rhetoric is really difficult to combat describe the rhetoric and the arguments that people are making for why we need these changes
1: well it's the affirmation of an adult' um, romantic desire because love is love and it's discriminatory to think that a polyamory uh, situation or a same-sex marriage situation, that their love is any less legitimate than a heterosexual's love and desire mm-hmm. to be fulfilled um, spiritually and emotionally. Um, it is an entirely emotionally-based um, lexicon completely removed from the needs of any children that might be involved in any of these amalgamations of family or quotes at family
0: stipulating that people are going to do in private what they're going to do in private and be with who they're going to be in private what's the argument for the state getting involved in Um, those sort of romantic encounters, you know, does the state exist to give love licenses out? Is that why we have family law? Are there any way in which there are effective arguments to push back on that kind of rhetoric from the standpoint of the reasons for the state getting involved in marriage, or is eventually this whole rhetoric going to erode family law like an acid altogether?
1: I'm afraid we're well down the slippery slope with acid, However, if we can have real conversations that begin with "Do what you like," you know, um, I'm not your pastor, and the and the state is not your pastor, spiritual leader, faith leader, whichever. But the reality of the state involvement in any relationship is simply concern for the next generation, the state, the next generation of the state's citizens, the country's citizens. Um, That has absolutely nothing to do with how two adults choose to comport themselves privately or three adults choose to comport themselves. Um, The state is an unemotional entity that has no legitimate concern for what adults choose to do in the bedroom. Um, It has a significant concern about the health and well-being of its next generation of citizens.
0: Yeah, that's right. The state has no interest in the romantic character of a relationship. It exists uh, to it recognizes marriage to bind, like you said, a man and a woman and any children born from their union. And there has to be state involvement in family life because it has to pick up the pieces from when family life breaks down. And so there's the argument that we can just get the state out of all these issues altogether. Just isn't practical.
1: No, no, and we need we need best policies. Of course, there will always be the antidotal, but what about this, but what about that? Of course, we're awash in brokenness. People make horrible decisions. We need to recognize as a society what is the very, very best environment to raise the most precious commodity that we have. And, of course, that that would be our, our children, the next generation.
0: It seems that as we address these questions, we're inevitably back to that fundamental question, though, of what is marriage? Um, Do you see people rethinking, given the family law revolution and the social revolution that's happened even the last decade uh, since Barack Obama, as you said, evolved on the question since the Windsor decision at the Supreme Court or Bergefell? Do you see people at all in your encounters rethinking these questions and saying, huh, I didn't know that what I thought was a move of tolerance to get the state out of the marriage business and just let people do what they want was going to lead to all these changes in family law that have far broader impacts. Do you see any rethinking of that and like rethinking why the state gets involved in the marriage business in the first place?
1: I do it in my own experiences having these conversations with people. I have, I have seen so many light bulbs go off and it seems to me like there's such a dearth of understanding the fundamentals of why we do what we do. And Most people are absolutely motivated by love and concern for people living the best lives as they see fit. Um, The moment you cast the conversation from the perspective of the child and add just a few layers of what detaching parenthood from marriage has done in the lives of children... It is an immediate sea change in people. Oh, I never thought about it that way. Coming at it from a loving perspective, loving the children and their well being first and foremost, and therefore loving adults by highlighting the damage that can happen. People don't, I don't believe people intend to put children in a bad situation to damage them um they want what they want and they've not heard the other side of the argument at all
0: let's probe that a little bit more in terms of children's need we're talking about children's needs over adult desires them before us what do children need i mean i think that's got to be part of the argument right and that there's a sense in the culture that well the kids are all right you know we can get divorced and as long as we have um nice relations with our ex-spouse or there's another loving parent in the house, then that's okay. It's as though, you know, moms and dads are and parents and couplings and triplings and throuples. These are all sort of interchangeable parts, and really a family is people and a people is love. And as long as we've got love, then the rest of the, the, the structure doesn't really make a difference. What's, what, is, what are your thoughts in response to that?
1: Yeah, the t- statistics just don't bear that out. Love is not enough for children to thrive for all the societal ills that we face, if when you add marriage, the the outcome for children in, improves dramatically. Statistically, stepmothers are less likely to buy quality food for children they're not related to. Children of stepmothers receive less health care. Uh, they have less money spent on their education. It, it's just a generally evidenced by the, the financial investment these families make in their kids when they are stepparent situations is, is kind of an obvious red flag. Conversely, stepfathers or unrelated males in the household, boyfriends, cohabitation, just Googling um, mother's boyfriend will bring up pages and pages of horrifying stories of children suffering abuse at the hands of unrelated men. Um, The fact is, and and I think we all know this, mothers and fathers are the most invested, um, the most connected to their biological children, and children have a right to be known and loved by their mother and father living in the same household.
0: In that context, I think that's absolutely right, and this idea that even in a a marriage that's not perfect and whose is, but even in a difficult marriage, the parents are better off staying together for the well-being of the child uh, than trying to create a new loving home for that child. The statistics seem to underscore that as well. So this idea that families are, it can be constructed or built in any way, and as long as there's quote-unquote love, the kids are going to be all right. Uh, as you said, uh, Stacy, so well, the statistics just don't bear that out uh, in, in any way, shape, or form.
1: Yeah, the reality is that a child whose parent dies fares better than a child who suffers divorce and grows up with two households with stand-in step-parent, mother, and father. Children do well when they know their parents did not choose to leave them, when they know that they did not rip out from under them the only foundation they've ever known when they have not lost connection with their mother or father when that time's not split in half, when they're not shuttled back and forth between houses, between rules, between expectations. Moms and dads' attention remains solely focused on them, not on their new romantic life or having to uh, learn and understand the dynamic of yet another family. it's, It's essentially familial breakup because the adults aren't willing to do the hard thing and work through their problems, hands that burden directly to the child and says, sweetheart, mom and dad can't carry this heavy burden of hard work, therefore we're going to have you do it.
0: If law is a teacher and marriage fundamentally in its original, civil marriage at least in its original intent was about connecting children to their parents. When we redefine marriage and allow same-sex couples, basically we're saying that for all intents and purposes, uh, parentage and for the well-being of children, two men or two women is just as good or valid uh, as a mother and a father. And that speaks directly to the complementarity and the uniqueness, the uniqueness of the sexes and what they each provide to a child. There is a difference between two same-sex parents and a mother and a father in terms of what they can provide to a child. Am I right about that?
1: Absolutely. And that's not to say uh, two lesbian women would not make absolutely amazing mothers, but what they will never make is a father. Fathers Fathers bring the heavy. Father's parents, like the world, presents itself. Mother's parents, like the home, presents itself. A mother will say, oh, sweetheart, can you take that garbage out I asked you yesterday? And she's happy to engage the so why should we do this? And, and why are you thinking that way? What does Dad say? Dad says, garbage, now. And, and why is that? Because that's what the world says. The world's not going to say, oh, sweetheart, could you please take the garbage? No. Dad reflects the world in his parenting style. And children need both. They need a safe place to land when they know that's going to be Mom. And they need that. They need the harsh reality of what they're going to face when they when they take on adulthood themselves.
0: I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but just to sum that up, this is these are this is just me editorializing here from the standpoint of the state and why it gets involved in marriage and stipulating that a same sex couple could provide lots of love to a child. Uh, the reality is that from the standpoint of what marriage does for chil- children and child well-being and how it contributes to the common good, there is no equality between a traditional male-female couple and a same-sex couple for the well-being of children. So I'm not going to put words in your mouth. That's just me stipulating that point. Stacy. In terms of just people being able to talk about these difficult questions that are emotionally charged around the water cooler, but recognizing our need to do so and speak forcefully about the importance of uh, mothers, fathers, uh, well-being of children, this transformation in family law. What are some just a rhetorical strategies that people can use or what's the you know, tips for talking about? Even just saying when people say love is love, how do you respond to that? Uh, claim. It's just sort of an all-encompassing, difficult, stop you dead in your tracks sort of point.
1: It, it is a stop you dead in your tracks. Um, I find that the best conversation is about the person's experience with their own mother and father, um, asking them questions about which parent, uh, which parent would they choose to have gone without. Have they read any of the stories? We have a huge storage bank on them before us of children really speaking anonymously sometimes, um, but a safe place for them to really share their mother or father hunger for those who grow up grew up in a same-sex marriage or their struggles with divorce, really drawing people out to to hear, the, hear their own stories come out of their own mouths and then listen to where were their deficits? Did they come from a broken home? Why was that so painful? What would the very best home would have looked like for them and and talk about how, how much different they are than the kids that are growing up today, that a child born today has no idea of the political climate. How could that child be any any different when compared to a child born, you know, 100 years ago? And And another very powerful point for me is the recognition that we have what a difficult time black boys are having in our society. You know, the, the high criminality, the, the high imprisonment numbers for black kids um, and the dearth of black fathers in the home. This correlation is accepted and recognized that boys, these kids need their fathers in the home. How can that be absolutely true while at the same time uh, two women raising a child without a father will be absolutely fine because they have love and two people those those things just cannot exist congruently
0: we invited you on today to talk about what's going on in utah and we've touched on related themes but <laughs> but say a little bit about the utah situation and the the rhetoric behind legalizing uh, polyamory uh, and you—a surprise, surprise—it would come from Utah, I suppose. But um, what's going on there? Where you have sort of breakaway Mormons and uh, progressives both working together—strange bedfellows.
1: Indeed, and it is—it um, is the the outcropping of the redefinition of marriage that that we focus now on adult desire and love is love and people who feel discriminated against because the, the state won't recognize the way that they've chose to um, fashion their romantic relationships in the home. Uh, none of the conversation has to do with the well-being of children in polyamorous situations, as we spoke about before. The statistics re- regarding unrelated adults in the home um, also apply to 2 plus 1, two, three. Um, We're still talking about men and women who are not invested the way that biological parents are invested in the children. More does not necessarily mean greater investment. I would say that the amount of time means the amount of time that a child be able to spend with their their parents, biological parents, would be diminished as those parents have other interests in the home. Read some of the stories on The Before Us about kids that grow up in polyamorous homes, and kids aren't into watching their father make moves on a woman who's not their mother with their mother in the next room. It's sexually confusing. It doesn't model in any way the healthiest, best practice of making a marriage and making an adult life for the children involved.
0: Not to mention the misogyny of polyamorous and polygamous relationships, the prevalence of sexual abuse and all these things. But this is where we've come when consent has become the standard of the good. Stacy Manning, it's been a pleasure to have you on the bridge builder Day. Where can people go to find more information about your important work at them before us?
1: Yep. Then before us.com, please come and visit our site, read some of our stories. We have many studies. If you feel you need girding, when you make these arguments with people that you know and love come and do some homework our our site has oh so much personal story and so much of the science we i really feel like we're making a very good case and if you would just take the leap with us i i believe that so many listening are definitely one of us and thank you so much for having me
0: stacy i'm encouraged by your words and your work god bless you and the work of them before us and thanks for joining us on the bridge builder today
1: Thank you for having me. Have a great day.
0: And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Briller, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag segment to hear your comments and questions. Kit, what have you got for today? Yeah, so Minnesota's presidential primary was on March 3rd, Super Tuesday. We've received questions from lay Catholics, clergy, parish groups about participation in that primary, but also just whether they should be involved with other partisan activities. What kind of counsel can you provide on this issue? Well, if we don't want the parties to shape us, then we have to shape the parties. So we certainly encourage people to get involved, bring the Catholic principles, Catholic the gospel voice into the party platforms. As society secularizes, uh, the party platforms become more and more detached on both sides uh, from Christ, you know, Judeo-Christian values, a Judeo-Christian worldview, and we shouldn't be surprised by that because of secularization, because uh, uh, a rise in unbelief and practical atheism, uh, as the popes have called it. So that's not surprising. That's why we need to be more engaged from the standpoint of working with through in and through the parties to promote the common good and to provide resolutions and party platforms through the caucus process to help pick good candidates who bring a consistent ethic of life into the public conversation. We need more of those, not fewer. We advise the bishops that clergy voting in the primary functioned as a partisan activity. And so we presume that priests weren't caucusing when we had a caucus system and as we moved to a primary system in which it's possible that a clergy's choice of ballot, Republican or Democrat, or if there were other parties participating, might become known. We think that priests, as a point of unity, ministering to diverse congregations, working on both sides of the aisle priest needed to maintain his evangelical credibility, be able to speak in a way that when he speaks about Catholic social teaching, uh, important moral questions, that those did not have the din of partisanship surrounding that message and that evangelical witness. So especially in light of the fact that the church is principled in its engagement and never partisan uh, as a standpoint of an institution, having its clergy maintain that transcendence on the uh, the partisan divide was super important. And so we advised the bishops accordingly, and uh, we think that's important for maintaining the church's evangelical credibility despite what some might say voting republican or democrat is not a prerequisite of being catholic and it's not a prerequisite of being catholics in good standing and that's going to make some people angry and i get that but um, it's important from the standpoint of maintaining the church's evangelical witness in the public square we are principled and never partisan though we certainly encourage lay catholics to be engaged in the parties to transform them for the good great and Although those are also great practical tips, we want to leave our listeners with some other ways to start building bridges between faith and public life. And so each week we're going to give you tips in our bricklayer segment. Jason, what have you got this week? Well, how do we become an advocate? How do we be a faithful citizen? And the basic thing we can all do is certainly pray for our legislators, but we also need to be in relationship with them. If we don't know who they are, how can we expect uh, them to make good laws? If we're not communicating with them about what good laws are, how can we expect that they're going to make good laws? And there are lots of different proposals we need to engage with legislators to help guide them and advise them about what serves human dignity and the common good. Mark your calendars for May 6th and May 7th. Uh, We're going to be hosting uh, Capital 101 trainings on May 7th. We have a drop in advocacy and adoration day on May 6th. And then we'll also have a service for National Day of Prayer. So some trainings, but also some opportunities for prayer. And we always want to link prayer and discipleship together, especially in the public arena. For more information about these events, go to mncatholic.org. Again, that's mncatholic.org. That's all the time we have for today, but remember to send your questions to our mailbag segment. Again, that email is show at mncatholic.org, show at mncatholic.org. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions in a way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins for the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and with our producer, Kit Cross, we wish you a very blessed day. Thanks for listening, and we'll look forward to chatting again next week. God bless.